Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, chicken licking is licking chicken. Uh, we have entered Bizarro World this week. Uh, there's a lot of questions to be asked and a lot of questions to be answered. But I think to introduce this week's film, Cam, I hear you have a massive tool for us. <laughs> what an intro. Uh, yes, we are here this week to talk about the 1972 Charles Bronson film, The Mechanic. Do you dig it? I dug it. <laughs> We're going to dig it. Well, for those who haven't heard of this film, here is your letterbox.com synopsis. And uh, we're back to one of those long ones. Is it the older pitching of the tents? Yeah, that was the uh, classic phrase that you used, yes. That you won't use. Yes, I get it. <laughs> the mechanic. He has 100 ways to kill. And they all work. <laughs> It's it's capitalized against the rest of it, so you have to shout it. Sorry, guys. Arthur Bishop is a veteran hitman who, owing to his penchant for making his target's death seem like accidents, thinks himself an artist. It's made him very rich. But as he hits middle age... Middle age? Really? Oh, wow. Was okay. that middle age? Okay. Apparently. But as he hits middle age... He's so depressed and lonely that he takes on one of his victim's sons, Steve McKenna, as his apprentice. Arthur puts him through a rigorous training period and brings him on several hits. As Stephen improves, Arthur worries that he'll discover who killed his father. I can guarantee when we tackle the Jason Statham version of the mechanic further down the road that the synopsis will be about one or two sentences. I hope so. <laughs> I'm still reeling from that. They like the the end bit is like who killed his father, which they don't introduce in the synopsis. So who's his father, and why has that got to do with anything? Well, his father was uh, Keenan Wynn who died on the beach. No, I know, I know in the film, but in yeah. that synopsis it says about the father, but it never mentions the father. So anyone right. reading it be like, wait, who's whose father? I don't have answers to this. I mean, I do look forward, though, to tracking the synopses of The Mechanic 2011 and then The Mechanic Resurrection. I feel like by the time you get to Resurrection, it'll just be like a one-word synopsis, which is just like, boom. <laughs> Jason Statham. Just Statham exclamation mark. Yeah, with three exclamation marks. Yeah. Yeah, perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, The Mechanic is a film that uh, we may have to jump for a few hoops to discuss. But I'm interested to hear from you, Cam, because I had never seen this film, although I've seen a couple of Charles Bronson films. Did you have any connection with The Mechanic? I did, actually. Um, so there was a video store, Scott, back in the day. I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode we did. Maybe it was on the Patreon. I can't remember. But uh, we had a, th a, a video store called Schlockbuster, which somehow uh, avoided all copyright issues from Blockbuster and was called Schlockbuster. Well done. And it was well done. an amazing video store that was totally decorated up. It was a big celebration of genre films going on in that video uh, store where it's like the statue of um, Gort from The Day the Earth Stood Still. There was trick mirrors all over the place, made to look kind of almost like a carnival as well, kind of carnival atmosphere. It was just a cool place to hang out. They weren't, they weren't trick mirrors, Cam. <laughs> 
but I looked so beautiful. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> yeah. And basically, if you were looking to go and rent City Slickers 2, this was not your video store. But if you were like, I want to go find Zardoz, I want to go find The Hills Have Eyes Part 2, you were going to go to Schlockbuster. Because it like specialized in all the like... Not necessarily like ultra obscure. It did have a lot of very obscure stuff, but just like movies that didn't have wide distribution in terms of DVDs, you know, kind of forgotten sequels to franchises, anything like that. It did have new releases. You know, you could get the latest new releases there, but if you wanted, you know, to watch a, a special print of like Logan's Run, go there, or any kind of horror, sci fi, even like vintage erotica, they had a whole section of that. It had. All that Cam, sort of stuff. Cam knew it well, folks. Cam knew it well. <laughs> A to Z, folks. A to Z. <laughs> Speaking of that massive tool. <laughs> it was just a very cool place. And unfortunately, they went out of business. Um, the entire block that the uh, video store was on was completely bought up and turned into condominiums. The block went bust. Mm, well, yes, yes. The schlock went bust. Mm. And uh, so they could not find a place to relocate. And so they sold off all of their merchandise for, like, pennies, basically. Mm -hmm. And I ended up buying a DVD of The Mechanic there. So, long preamble. But, yes, I bought a copy of The Mechanic. And I think I bought it either, A, because I'd seen the Statham one and I wanted to see the original. Or, B, I knew the Statham one was coming because they had announced it as a remake of a Charles Bronson film from the 70s. And I wanted to watch the original before seeing that one. I'm leaning more towards the latter. So I did watch it and I enjoyed it. But I remember being um, rather taken aback by its pace. And um, I looked up my just my grade on it. Because honestly, I this is like, again, like over 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And my memory was very vague. I did recall the dynamic between the two leads very well. But in terms of like point by point what happens throughout the movie it was a little vague so i looked up my grade i gave it three stars so i enjoyed it it gave me enough i suppose to walk away happy but it was not a movie that i've revisited since and at the time you obviously never thought to look at it through the lens of it being a spy movie no no i did not scott (laughs) more fool you cam (laughs) yeah i mean i just never dreamed that i would be revisiting the mechanic franchise in my lifetime so yeah, I, I don't think many people were when they clicked on this episode, to be fair. Well, you know, um, yeah, and I mean, I guess we should just a- a- answer the question maybe people have of like, why are you talking about the mechanic uh, on Spy Hards? And it's something we have dabbled in before. We did it with Day of the Jackal and the Jackal, where we like to look at Hitman films, which often cross into kind of spy genre tropes. There's often mysterious, um, you know, clients working with these people. There can often be international aspects to the intrigue that's going on there's some of that in the mechanic for sure and uh it's more just an examination of like do these movies apply we felt day the jackal had enough spy elements to make it work as a um as a spy film that made the knock list so the question will be with some of these hitman movies do they belong should they be in that kind of discussion and i uh i don't think it's actually that hard to defend the choice particularly that you've laid it out quite well but from my side of it and I'm not going to get into my thoughts on the film just yet, but I don't think you could tell me that his life isn't far off of James Bond's life. Nope. That house he lives in, the company he keeps, 
just getting missions from a mysterious guy in an office somewhere or over the phone and being sent off around the world to take people out. I mean, that sounds quite like License to Kill. And that's uh, definitely a spy film, according to everyone. Or even something like The Liquidator with Rod Taylor. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely a spy film. Uh, So I think the jury's, you know, out on this. I don't think it's a, it's a closed case. I don't think it's that easy to say it isn't a spy film. I think it's interesting to look at it through that lens, which we will do now. But I think before we get there, Cam, how did you assemble this shed of mechanics? This tool shed of mechanics. Tool shed? Uh-oh, taking us back to... Um, bad company. Oh God, bad company, bad company, bad downloads. I can't remember the name of that one. <laughs> don't call it that. <laughs> And this movie, how did it happen? Well, it began with a writer named Louis John Carlino, who began in the very beginning of the 1960s in TV, and then kind of got his film breakthrough with the Rock Hudson film Seconds, and just proceeded to work on a number of like studio films, nothing with like real pedigree, but consistently working. And in 1972, he did a movie called a Reflection of Fear with Robert Shaw, and he rolled right from that movie into this one. When you look at his overall, you know, kind of future, what he worked on, the mechanic is probably kind of his baby of the group. It's the one that stands out as one of his kind of key films. He did work on The Great Santini, the Robert Duvall film from 79, which was very acclaimed, but he was like one of three writers on it. So I would say that, you know, just because of the fact the mechanic spawned a franchise, that's kind of his thing. So the uh, story that uh, Carlino came up with was initially purchased by producer Martin Paul in uh, the in mid-1968 and set up at Universal. Now, Paul would not stick with this project, but he was for a, a certain period of time the one kind of carrying this one towards a finish line. And he set it up with uh, actor Cliff Robertson set to star in it. And around 1969, they started reporting in the trades this movie would be shooting. Cliff Robertson, for people that don't know, you know, Oscar-winning actor, started the movie Charlie back in the day. But people would probably know him best, who are younger, as Uncle Ben in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. Oh. Oh, okay, right, okay. I I didn't know that guy had much of a career apart from dying in three films. Oh, yeah, he was a uh, something of a Hollywood legend when he was cast in Spider-Man. Oh, so that was a bit, bit of a get for that film, was it? Yeah, it was. It was kind of like casting someone with pedigree from the old days, kind of the way that um, the Richard Donner Superman had Glenn Ford playing Superman's father, another classic actor of the previous eras. Wasn't Glenn Ford in the Superman movies? Wasn't it like Orson Welles or something? No. Oh, you, you're th- are you thinking of Marlon Brando? as Marlon as, Brando, yeah, sorry. I, I meant Glenn Ford as the adoptive father. Sorry, yes, you're right, Marlon Brando. Um, I haven't watched it in a long time, clearly. True. Maybe a Patreon? We'll see. We'll see. I, I have a very uh, a good story about that film, actually, which we'll, I'll save. Mm-hmm. So not only was Cliff Robertson set to star in this movie, uh, Martin Ritt was being looked at as the director. Martin Ritt, maybe the name doesn't jump out, but he has a few key credits to his name. He directed The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, hmm. and also the movie HUD, starring Paul Newman, which is a real classic. And would go on and do things like Sounder, which was an Oscar nominee for Best Picture, as well as Norma Ray, which won Sally Field an Oscar. So he had a certain amount of pedigree to him. He's not like someone who, you know, it's not like a Scorsese or a Coppola where like the name looms large. But Martin Ritt was a very respected director. 
And they announced uh, in the late 60s that this movie would be shooting in New York. And that um, at a certain point, Cliff Robertson fell out. But even then, they were saying that, like, Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster might be interested in starring in this film. So they were looking at this being very much like an A picture. Like, pretty top-tier director, top-tier talent. And then filming was just delayed, and the project was sold off. Well, I mean, tracking back, you said it was looking like it was going to be an A picture. Obviously, they stuff happened that caused delays, but man, what happened to cause it to plummet off the cliff like that car later in the film? Because this <laughs> is not an A picture. Well, I mean, the fact the picture was sold off, you know, the story was sold off, it basically meant that it's kind of in limbo, and so the writer, you know, Louis John Carlino, began working with another potential director, uh, who was Monty Hellman, who was an editor, director, and producer, a bit of a cult figure, really. Um, he'd gotten his start in the late 50s. He directed a movie called Beast from Haunted Cave, which I now must watch. Great but, name, great name. But he'd also edited some early Jack Nicholson and Peter Fonda kind of counterculture films. He would direct the 1971 cult film um, Tulane Blacktop, which inspired a Rob Zombie song later down the road and is considered one of the big car movies of that era and an inspiration point for Quentin Tarantino when he did Death Proof. Okay. Okay, there is some caliber there. Yep. Go on. And so they began working together, and while Hellman isn't uh, credited in the film, if you look it up on IMDb, it says he was a pre-script writer. So essentially just kind of worked through some ideas, but did not have any sort of um, major contribution to the finished form, at least in terms of uh, WGA um, approval. Just like me with the show. Exactly. And I guess, you know, Hellman is pretty much gone because he does not stick with the project. But he does, you know, have a bit of a legacy because he would become an exec producer, um, you know, 20 years later on Reservoir Dogs. That was his that was his comeuppance. That was his time to shine 20 years later. It is also interesting, a, a pre-script work. It just sounds like pre-cogs from Minority Report. <laughs> like you're, you're, you're dreaming up the end script before you've written anything. Monty Hellman was like floating in like a pool of goo. <laughs> And then just doing like the hand wavy things that, that Tom Cruise does yeah. throughout the film with the fake screens. <laughs> exactly. A real pioneer. A real pioneer. <laughs> so Monty Hellman was out basically because the producers switched studios and it wound up at United Artists and MGM. And they hired Michael Winner, who was a London-born director and began in the late 50s, started working in B-movies, and by the 60s started making action and western films with very notable actors like Burt Lancaster, Oliver Reed, Marlon Brando, people who were like big stars but were kind of in that maybe a little bit of a down period in their careers where they're still recognizable, they can still sell movies in the theater but they're not necessarily at the top of their game they were the way they were maybe in the previous decades. Much like us once again. Once again, yes. And um Yes, so Michael Winner had worked with Charles Bronson in 1972 on a film called Chateau's Land. And so he made a lot of sense to direct Charles Bronson again with a project that came out the exact same year. And so that's why they reteamed for The Mechanic. Okay, well, it's interesting because the only two films of Charles Bronson I'd seen before this, one was a Michael Winner film with Death Wish. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And they did, I think, like, six movies together or something like that. They had a, a continuing uh, relationship, yes. And um, 
You know, it should be noted that Michael Winner was not known as the most wonderful of individuals. Uh, there's definitely allegations about him. We have had a guest on an episode of this show talk about an experience with Michael Winner. So uh, one of the problematic people you run into when you tackle movies, especially older movies, on a podcast. Yes, I'm going to leave that there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but he was primarily known for, especially this point in his career moving forward, kind of like B-action movies. And some were very successful, and uh, some were uh, total trash. Just like us again. <laughs> exactly, yes. And Charles Bronson, at this point in his career, you know, people think of Charles Bronson for his really iconic stuff, like Magnificent Seven or The Great Escape in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. But he hadn't really, like, succeeded as a Hollywood lead in the years since those movies, but he had exploded in Europe. And he was starring in a lot. He did what in Europe? <laughs> he exploded, Scott. Exploded. <laughs> Put that tool away, Charles. <laughs> he was starring in a lot of westerns and action films shot in Europe. He was a huge star over there. And The Mechanic was his first film back in the U.S. since 1966. And many deem it as kind of the point where we pivot towards Charles Bronson becoming a bankable U.S. star once again. So it was Charles Bronson's Taken. Uh, in some ways, yeah, that's not a terrible comparison. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't crap, Scott. Well done. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, Liam Neeson was known for these kind of like almost supporting roles in big movies like Batman Begins or Phantom Menace. I think he has top billing in Phantom Menace, but no one looks at that movie and goes, that's a Liam Neeson film. That's all I have when I watch that film nowadays. True, true. The only good bit. Yeah. So um, there is a note that I'll mention that I could not find any hard evidence that this was the case, but it's uh, mentioned around the internet, which was Jeff Bridges was up for the uh, secondary role of Steve McKenna. I could not, once again, find any proper source indicating this to be true, but it also wouldn't surprise me given where Jeff Bridges' career was in like the early 70s because this is right around the same period as last picture show so he is an up-and-coming talent yeah i imagine they just wanted someone that's sort of fresh face for the role Mm -hmm. that looked a bit physically fit so i guess jeff bridges would have been right around this time and this chap i guess fit that bill too Mm -hmm. yeah and this was a uh relatively low budget affair it cost 10 million dollars now the uh actual box office is impossible to find I found one site, which I'm not holding as true, that claimed it made eighty thousand dollars. I'm like, uh, I don't I don't know if I buy this. Either way, it was an underperformer. It was not a big hit. Um, but uh Charles Bronson would have better luck going forward. But yeah, in nineteen seventy two this was a uh, somewhat of an underperformer. I mean, moviestats.biz is probably not the best uh source when it comes to this sort of stuff. To me, like if you tell me a movie now makes eighty thousand, I go, yeah, that makes sense. They must have dumped it in a couple of theaters and then sold it for streaming or something along those lines. But in nineteen seventy two, it's not like there's a big secondary market to be selling it off to. So, like, why would it be making only eighty thousand dollars? Wait, so are you saying that as is that an overestimate or an underestimate? I think that's a wild underestimate. See, I don't know if this film has much of a legacy to it. I'm not sure it. I wouldn't have said necessarily it did that well. 80,000 is nothing. That's like, that's not even in the, oh, in the top 200. Money bags over here. Yeah, well, that's not even in the top 200 of a box office here. Probably even then. 
That's Canadian dollars talking right there. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. Okay, that's fair enough. I mean, you know this stuff better than I do. I'll, I'll bow down to that. And I, I think this, I, I'm probably underplaying it. This film does have a little bit of a legacy. It does. Yeah. So um, the top three for the year, number one was The Godfather, which, of course, uh, best picture of that year. Which, which famously also starred Orson Welles. Yes, yes. Orson Welles, known for his grand makeup job to perform uh, Don Corleone. Yes, yes. Very well known. Yeah. And uh, He loves oranges. He certainly does. <laughs> number two was The Poseidon Adventure, starring Superman the movie star Gene Hackman. I thought, I thought you were going to say Orson Welles again. <laughs> <laughs> nope. And number three was the Peter Bogdanovich film, What's Up, Doc? Which I've never seen, but I've heard is very good. I wonder if it stars well somewhere. No, I don't think so. No, I've definitely not seen What's Up, Doc. Uh, but uh, if it if it's had all this acclaim, maybe I should check it out. Yeah, and the director, Peter Bogdanovich, was a close personal friend of Orson Welles and actually co-starred in Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind. Is this just becoming an Orson Welles episode? Maybe it should at some point. <laughs> <laughs> we might need the content when we get to about 20 minutes into the review. Yeah, Orson Hearts. Um, and a couple final notes. It's clearly well Hearts. I, I don't know. I, Orson Hearts is more distinct. Let us know, folks. Orson Hearts or Wells Hearts? I, I think it's well Hearts because I'm well hard. So a couple final notes. Um, two years later, Michael Winner and Charles Bronson would reteam for a little movie called Death Wish which would become a massive phenomenon and make Charles Bronson a big star. And he would make, I think, like four more Death Wish films after that and have a, a string of movies. Um, another note that's interesting, though, is that um, during the development of this film, it went through some script changes. And later on down the road, the writer Louis John Carlino talked about it and said that this was one of the big disappointments of his career because he had intended the two leads to be gay, mm -hmm. and the studio was not willing to bankroll that at that point in time in the 70s. And it also led to casting issues. Uh, I know they said George C. Scott wouldn't even read it because of that being the setup for the movie. So that was changed to obviously get talent, get financing. Not a surprise in, 19, in the 1970s or late 60s, because sure. it was very unclear when these changes were made, whether it was up front, which is my guess in the late 60s, or over the development period. But either way, I have a quote from the writer. He said, I wanted a commentary on the use of human relationships and sexual manipulation in the lives of two hired killers. It was supposed to be a chess game between the older assassin and his young apprentice. The younger man sees that he can use his sexuality to find the Achilles heel that he needs to win. There was a fascinating edge to it, though, because toward the end, the younger man began to fall in love and this fought with his desire to beat the master and take his place as number one. The picture was supposed to be a real investigation into the situation, and it turned into a pseudo-James Bond film. It's a spy film. Yeah, and there we go. Some spy cred right there. A pseudo-James Bond film. And we specialize on spy hearts in pseudo-James Bond films. We're a pseudo-podcast. <laughs> we are. We are. Pseudo-hards. <laughs> yeah, I'm still sticking with the Welsh hearts. Uh, well, I think that is... Obviously, it's not overt anymore, but there is still some subtext of that relationship there in this film. Oh, big time, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think I think it probably could be reevaluated as a little bit of a sort of queer cinema if it was if someone wanted to look at it that way. Um, it's interesting because in my notes, I wrote something down before I did any research 
that they it feels like there's something here. There's a lot of like stares at each other and stuff that I'm surprised mm-hmm. they did in 1971. Uh, now you said that it makes total sense. Yeah, and even the way that Jan Michael Vincent is introduced in the movie, where it's like a butt shot close up, like it's a very mm-hmm. sexualized, like this young kind of built man in frame. It's an interesting way to introduce kind of this uh, secondary lead in an assassin picture. And yeah, you see his girlfriend a few scenes later and he does not care at all. Nope. Which is something I want to unpack shortly. But yeah, now you've spelt that out, it does seem like it is all there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's about time we uh, fondled our balls. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Of wax, Cam. Of wax. Get out of your head. Jeez, what's wrong with you? I was thinking handball because they're playing handball in this movie. Is that what that is? Yeah. I've never seen that before in my life. It used to be, I think, pretty popular in the 70s and maybe 80s or something. Um, I think I, you know, to be honest, I think I have a friend that plays it occasionally, but it's not a big thing anymore. Is it just by himself? <laughs> I have vague memories of my friend Tony saying that he plays handball, but maybe I'm misremembering. <laughs> it's a euphemism for something. <laughs> I'm not going to say either way. <laughs> Scott, I'm in great shape. Wow, I've been playing a lot of handball recently. <laughs> I guess it didn't uh, pick up on the other side of the pond. <laughs> it's just we just don't call it that. <laughs> oh, oh, fair enough, fair enough. Thank you, thank you. Well, no, let's talk about it. It's an interesting film to pick apart. I think I'm going to take the lead because you've already spoken about your thoughts on the film. Yeah. This was a rough one to sit through, I have to say. Interesting. I had a bad time. I had yeah. two bad times with it. My expectations, they weren't met. I'd seen Death Wish. I was expecting a Death Wish film. Mm-hmm. It's not Death Wish. It was sluggish. It felt uninspired a lot of the time. And and then there's just this whole like soggy bit in the middle where it's just the plot just dribbles on by for about an hour. But it's sandwiched between two really great sequences. You've got the opener. Like this film opens with a 15-minute sequence of no dialogue. Yeah. That's a bold choice for a film, let alone a film in the 70s. A film at any point, unless it's in the silent era. Bold choice. And some great sort of little espionage work going on there, the way he takes out his target, his mark. Great stuff. And at the end, there's a big old car chase shooting sequence and then how the big twist happens at the end as well. That's all great. But everything in between, I just found to be a complete snooze. I didn't care about Bronson. I didn't care about his protege. There's a whole conceit in this where, you know, Arthur Bishop, played by Charles Bronson, is a hired killer. That's that's what he is. He's an assassin. And mm-hmm. he's training Steve McKenna, uh, played by Jan Michael Vincent, to be a hired assassin too. And then he finds out towards the end that S- Steve McKenna has been hired to take out Arthur Bishop. So the the, uh, the the apprentice is going to kill the master, and it's meant to be a sort of ticking time bomb of how they're going to, you know, fight each other without actually saying any words. Yeah, but it really just feels like an afterthought, and it wraps up so quickly as well. Like I, there's so many things I bumped up against in this film, and it, it didn't keep my enjoyment at all, apart from those beginning and end moments. It it was a real shame. Well, I'm I'm just curious. You famously watched these movies twice for the mm-hmm. show. Yeah. Was the second time like really rough for you? Desperately rough. Desperately yeah. rough. The first, the first, as I said, the first fifteen minutes is actually really interesting. 
like seeing the life of Charles Bronson's character of Arthur Bishop. That's very interesting stuff. And seeing like the action. Like I was expecting it to be quite the action spectacle with the odd bit of dialogue in between, which mm-hmm. is more what I'm akin what I'm used to when it comes to stuff with Charles Bronson in. Maybe that's because I've programmed to his later films. So yeah, I I was disappointed in that half and, and like seeing all the training montages and the handball as it turns out it's cool and like the car- the, the karaoke the karate uh sequences and stuff like that just felt like it was just moving chess pieces like you mentioned that chess reference earlier it was slowly moving chess pieces to get to the end of the film but because I already knew the ending and the big twist it, it didn't have anything to sort of ride on it wasn't very rich that I could like pick out moments of acting to sort of draw myself in or great cinematography it really wasn't there i think i like this movie more uh than you did um okay Okay. i have issues with the pacing in maybe a different way which is that i actually was very drawn into this movie initially i thought you know as you said that first like 16 minutes of setting up this hit uh, this very labyrinthine uh, <laughs> Rube Goldbergian um, hit on someone is fantastically well done. And I'm making notes while I'm watching this like 70s grit. I love this sort of stuff. It feels mm-hmm. that sort of like immersive, just watching process happen that can yep. be so compelling in 70s movies. I think of like The French Connection uh, with Gene Hackman where it, it's just so many scenes like that. Um, so in that regard, I was like pulled into it and I liked the entire world that Charles... Um, Bronson's character inhabited and just kind of seeing that slowly open up and the way his character Charles Bronson I know there was a lot of debate back and forth about was Charles Bronson a good actor and you know he made a lot of movies that you might question and go no he seems like kind of a block of wood but I watch him here and so much of his performance in that first half is almost silent And it's just like the camera on his face and how much he communicates his inner thoughts to the camera. I think that's the sign of someone who is a good actor because a lot of actors could not have pulled this off. If you remake this movie with, say, like Sam Worthington circa 2009, I think he's much better now. But 2009, when they're trying to sell Sam Worthington as a star outside of Avatar, if you had a whole movie where they just focused on his face silently, I don't think he could get this across the way that Charles Bronson does. Like, I think there's genuine skill there. See, I, I, I think I'm going to bite back on that one because there's a moment very early on where Charles Bronson's Arthur Bishop goes to meet someone he's going to assassinate. And that's where he first meets the protege character. Mm. And the guy's like, he's got this really annoying laugh that makes me want to punch my screen. <laughs> Keenan Wynn, yeah, Disney icon. I believe uh, voted maybe the greatest Disney uh, villain or something like that for... He was the, God, the bad guy in, like, the absent-minded Professor films, one of the Herbie films. He was in a whole whack of, uh, of uh, classic Disney stuff. Well, okay, maybe the, the Michael Winner said, yeah, just go for it with the laugh. That's fine. But he starts... It's weird. It, it is very weird. Like, I, I almost want to play a clip of the, the laugh track that he created. It just, it, it goes on and on, much like I am making this point. But then he says something about, like, oh, do you remember when we went fishing? You were like seven, and, and, and Arthur Bishop was like, yeah. And he starts telling the story about how his, his father like was mistreating him. And Arthur Bishop just sort of sits there and stares, and the, the camera just sort of pulls in on him as he just gormlessly looks off to the side. <laughs> I, 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 maybe to some people that you can read that, it's like, that's some deep, deep 
acting like that. I'm just sitting there going, he's doing nothing. He's just staring. It's like he's looking at a sandwich at craft services. You see, to me, the melancholy of Charles Bronson's performance really came through. And that he was someone who expressed nothing. It was all this internal turmoil. Which, just hungry, Cam. Oh, <laughs> you know, you have that scene where he goes to like the prostitute who puts on this whole shtick that it's like his girlfriend who misses him and has written this love letter. And the whole scene, I'm like, this is insane. Like, this is bad female character writing, you know, 101. And then it flips it where it's like a prostitute who's created this whole act so he doesn't feel lonely. Like, it, it, I thought it was such an interesting take on this character who lives in this land of luxury, you know, this beautiful house, eats the finest food, but is just like, just completely feels alone. And I don't know. This really worked for me. I thought Charles Bronson sold it beautifully. I'll finish my final thought before we move into the deeper dive because I think we're already wandering into the deeper dive now. But where the movie began to lose me was actually when it began to turn into more of a conventional action film. Not because I don't enjoy a conventional action film from time to time. Uh, If you're going to give me a movie where Charles Bronson is going to be, you know, unloading shotguns on people, uh, you know, in a shootout on basically the highway or whatever in Italy great but i felt like when it got to the action the pacing was so set by what had come before that the action felt so lethargic like there was a motorcycle chase that was in slow motion to me like it was like oh my god like this just doesn't work with the kind of almost like meditative le samurai type hitman story they were kind of setting up but not really committing to by the time you got to the end See, I would I would take a pedestrian motorbike chase than than craft services Charles Bronson. I have to say. <laughs> so cold. You're as cold as the mechanic himself. <laughs> apparently, apparently so. Apparently so. Well, okay. Let's talk about good stuff first. Is what we like to do here. Let's get the praise out the way before we really trash the film. No, I'm kidding. Let's talk about some nice things. I'll start us off. Cam. Yes. <laughs> I haven't got anything. Oh, come on. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So, yeah, for me, when it comes to likes, it's basically the opening and closing of the film, the bookends of the film. Mm-hmm. As you said, that, that meditative study of an assassin at work, going into this guy's house, like watching him through, like, I, I think that's like a telescope attached to a camera, which is genius, by the way. I've never seen that done before. Great. Yeah. I want to see that more. Watching this guy do his, his like, daily duties. Go out and he goes and sneaks in some stuff, sneaks in some plastic explosive into a book that I didn't realize was plastic explosive. I thought it was just fudge. <laughs> like, that's rude. Why would you do that to someone's book collection? <laughs> he's like a troll. Yeah. He's, not only is he going to assassinate them, he's going to ruin their favorite book. What was it like The Art of War by Sun Z? He's like, nah, fudge. <laughs> Getting some fudge. Uh, no, maybe it was uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> oh, perfect. 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 I love it. Uh, but like, uh, and then, like, he changes the tea bags, I guess, to some sort of, like, sleep medicine or something like that to put them out. I think that's where that comes from. Mm-hmm. I-, I will say, as a note, it jumped out to me. Uh, anyone drinking English breakfast tea, which is what he was drinking, yeah, uh, you don't drink that without milk. Oh, really? But what about in America? Would that be different? No, you-, you drink that with milk. Okay. I- I'm-, I'm shocked and appalled on behalf of the British Isles. That anyone would be seen to do that. Like if it was some, uh, you know, Lapsang Souchon or some Earl Grey, that's that's you're meant to have that, you know, 
black with some lemon or a bit of sugar. Breakfast builder's tea? You put some milk in that bad boy. Okay. But anyway, back to what I liked. I, I love seeing all of this. and I, 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 I was so hyped in the first 15 minutes of the film. I thought, this is what we're getting. Some interesting stuff here and some action too. And then on the other side of the film, I, I quite like the, the sort of attack on the boat. Mm, yeah. The chase away from there. And then the twist at the end, which maybe I guess we'll jump into now as well. The twist is at the end that Jan Michael Vincent does get Charles Bronson, does, does kill him. I didn't think he would. I thought I thought I thought Charles Bronson would get the sort of jump on him, and sort of be too smart for it. But no, he takes him out with some poison in a glass of wine that they set up earlier in the film. I like that little payoff there. And then he goes, and then uh, Jan Michael Vincent goes back to the mechanic's house that I guess he thinks he now owns. Gets into the guy's car and it just says like, "I haven't come back to defuse this bomb. You're dead." Boom. Yeah. Bang. Dead. End of film. Yeah. Didn't see that coming. That was a uh, no way out level of final scene twist. I love the ending. I think it's fantastic. It's abrupt, but it's perfect. I do wonder, though, do you think that Charles Bronson was actually duped, or do you think he knew that he had poisoned that drink? Well, there's some looks that he pays before he drinks it. Mm -hmm. And when I saw him do it, I, I thought when I saw the drink being poured that there was something wrong. Yeah. My back was already up, but I and I only knew as much as he did. And then he looked at it too. So, but I, but by that admission, you would say it would be suicide then. Well, I look at this movie, and I think this is why I'm maybe a little more in favor of it because it's actually when it's connecting with this sort of meditative take on the hitman stuff. I think it's quite interesting where it's someone who I think is very isolated and alone, but is also a sociopath and has found another sociopath who has this like connection. Like there's this powerful connection. It doesn't even have to be like sexual the way that maybe the writer would have liked to have seen it get across. But it's like, there is a connection that is far more intimate than anyone else can understand that these two have in common. And the fact that he realizes at a certain point that this individual that he feels like the relationship is so strong, he feels like there's such a connection that the betrayal is almost like he doesn't care anymore. And he's actually willing to take the loss just because he knows that this connection's broken. So that would infer that he would be willing to give up his entire life just because he doesn't get to connect with this human being anymore? Well, this setup is, and it's a very common thing in Hitman movies, we're going to come across it a billion times, which is they're a Hitman, but they have one rule. And they always break the rule. And he had run afoul of his, you know, clients. He was willing to put his entire career on the line. And ultimately, they got set up at the end because they found out that he would brought this, you know, this young kid along, this protege, and basically broken the agreement he had with his, you know, clients. So they were going to have him killed. So his life is kind of over already. But not only that, this connection is also shattered because he can't trust this one person he was willing to put it all on the line for. So kind of like, does he have any reason to stick around? I, I still wouldn't just off myself, though. Well, I mean, you got to put yourself in the mind of this particular character who just seems so broken by loneliness. Maybe, maybe so. I, 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 I'm not complaining about the sequence. I think it was, was really good. I, I just don't know if I would have gone the same way. 
But I'm like you say, I'm not a sociopath or a hired killer. That we know of. It hasn't yet been revealed on Spy Hearts, but we're going to wait for an anniversary episode. <laughs> hey, hey now. <laughs> listeners, listeners. Just bear in mind which one of the two of us in this episode is resonating with the loner sociopath murderer. <laughs> I'm the mechanic. <laughs> you had that in your notes. No, I guarantee you had that in your notes. Did not. Did not. Literally just <laughs> stared at the title at the top of my notes and put it together. Ah, well done. Well done, sir. I'll give you that. What about you? Something you want to uh, mention that you liked? Well, I mean, I just want to show a little more love to that opening, which the... And I'll have something else in a second, but just like that entire setup of that 15 minutes and the way you watch him meticulously lay out the process of an assassination, I loved it. I'm like, this is just brilliant. This is like kind of 70s cinema, what it could do best. And it's so immersive. And it's slow-paced. It's slow burn in the best way. And I think when the movie works, that's what it's doing well, which is that slow burn tension. It loses track a number of times. And I think that's where you run into issues. But here, the setup where we know all the ingredients that have gone into the assassination, but we don't know how they work. And then we get to sit back and actually watch each part play out. And then you get to see that a few more times through the course of the movie. Like the assassination of Keenan Wynn, where I called it Keenan's Bad Day at the Beach where you see him looking at medical records, staging this, you know, attack on the two on Keenan Wynn's character and how it's all built up to a heart attack. I think the movie's at its best when it's exploring the world of the Charles Bronson character. So I guess that is my plus, which is that I found that very immersive when it was like, we are going to show you the life of this assassin. We're going to show you amazingly decorated housing, uh, where these characters dwell. I was constantly in awe of every single location they went to because it looked incredible in a 1970s way mm -hmm. um all the process and the way he was teaching what he knew to his protege i thought was very interesting you could have gone even more in depth on on that stuff i would have loved him taking his protege and committing a hit in the same way he did with that early one but even still just watching the two of them work through a scenario you know, before the bike chase, when they're going into the house and posing as the chicken salesman slash drug delivery guy or whatever, and infiltrating that house. All that stuff I thought was so interesting and compelling. I wanted more of it. I'm like, just give me the two hour or whatever, hour, 40 minute version of that. I don't need the kind of generic shoot 'em up stuff. Okay. I, I think maybe I, I'm starting to get an idea of where we fall apart, and that is on the connection. Hmm. I'm not sure I felt the connection. You want to see more of the connection. So I was sort of leaning back on something I know I can at least enjoy watching, which is cool action stunts. Sure, yeah. They are well They are well executed. Like, watching a car just, like, take a header off a cliff and turn into a pancake, there is a joy to that that uh, is very simple but very effective. It's a lost art. You don't see it much anymore. But like they really held that shot and got their money's worth from that that car they threw down the cliff. Totally. And I mean, just the scene of the guy on the bike. Uh, I didn't care for the bike chase, but having him end with that bike plummeting off again another cliff <laughs> with like a dummy on the bike and then exploding mm. the second it hit the ground. I mean, perfect. Chef's kiss. Yeah, you can't hold logic to this because why would it explode? But we don't care about that. We just want to see things go boom. The other like I had, you kind of jumped on it a little bit, but I'll just jump in a bit more. I mean, I am here all day for Arthur Bishop's choice of dressing gown. Mm, yes. 
that is, or a smoking jacket or whatever it is. He he dresses well when he's off duty, not so much on duty, but when he's lounging around his house, which is actually one of those things I noted down in terms of the sort of coding of this film. Mm-hmm. Like he has quite a luxurious lifestyle and that doesn't necessarily connect the two dots, but like you can always tell the like the way he is in his private life that, that he has that card. He, he, he There is something he's being played there. I always feel that there's a choice being made by Charles Bronson to have that subtext to it. I don't think it is just in the script. I think he's probably quite cognizant of it. Yeah, I think you're right, yeah. Uh, but but like I, I liked seeing his apartment. Apparently there's a painting in there that's quite expensive. It's a fake, obviously, but like there's a... He's meant to be a collector of art. He's got all these old weapons. He's got this like blackboard that he puts all of his assassination paperwork up but he connects all the dots together and stuff. Very cutesy to see. It's nice to see that the world of a assassin pays off camp. So you do have something to look forward to. Well that whole sequence where he has like the photos up and all the you know the information he needs and he's like connecting the dots as to how to execute these uh these hits that have to kind of look like accidents or something. Like they can't have a trace that an assassin was involved. That stuff was really cool. And I can't really remember the Statham movies very well, but my guess is those are going to be far more cartoonish when we actually yeah. get to those movies. Like, they're going to be very over-the-top and big. Whereas I liked how the big, like, early one, where it's just, like, blowing up that apartment, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of silly. Like, it's very almost like, um, you know, Final Destination kind of thing, where it's, like, sure. the number of dominoes that have to go down for everything to work is kind of silly. But it's incredibly, like cool to see on screen but it's also like it tells you something about the character where like he could just snipe this guy done yeah he, he he's a crack shot he could just shoot him from the other side of the street yeah exactly but the fact he's willing to possibly take out bystanders he does not care he's blowing up this building in an apartment and you see like the fire exploding you hear screams you hear fire engines all that sort of stuff he doesn't care like it just shows you like kind of the morality of this character which and I think a part of the reason why it sort of was a explosive beginning of the film that worked for me, it's just a shame where it went. I think if the movie had just staged sequences like that, I would have been just like in heaven. Make this movie three hours long. I don't care. I uh, care about that. <laughs> well, then, but then to be fair, if it had had more of these sort of meticulous style assassinations throughout, maybe I would have had a bit more interest because they they're. At no point, I think, throughout the rest of the film are they ever as meticulous as that opener. Now, that is obviously a set piece. It's meant to be longer. Mm -hmm. But nothing ever gets to the level of that sort of staking out, plotting, than than this. There's there's one sequence when they're in Italy later on where they're sort of slowly trying to put something together, but there's not enough there. There's less work. It's more about the two of them. Yeah. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors 
and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Well, Scott, April's reached its end, and we need to take a look back and break down all the spy news that happened this month and determine what it all means. That's right, folks. It's the April edition of The Debrief. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. But I... Oh, well, I, I'm dragging us into dislikes, and I don't want to do that yet, but I haven't got any more likes to address, so is there more you'd like to talk about? Well, I was going to say that, like, we recently talked about The Fourth Protocol, a movie that, mm-hmm. you know, we enjoyed. We thought it was totally worth watching, sure. but we did say that, like, a lot of the surveillance stuff didn't feel like it had a real tension to it, whereas I felt like this movie did surveillance quite well. There's a number of scenes where you have Charles um, Bronson, like, tracking his targets, and I felt like it had a lot more of a kind of a attention to it than the fourth protocol did. I mean, I will say Charles Bronson was practically leaning out of the window with that uh, telescope mm-hmm. in terms of being incognito. I'm surprised no one was like, Hey, why is that guy hanging out the window with a telescope? <laughs> no one, no one noticed the guy. <laughs> um, something else I liked about this movie was this is an era where um, <laughs> a movie like this is rated PG because who cares? <laughs> Bring your children. <laughs> it's a it's a wholesome family adventure. It's insane. Like the fact that this was a PG rated movie is I know people complain nowadays, like kids are exposed to violence in media. And I'm like, God, in the nineteen seventies they were like, Bring your children and come see the mechanic, where you can watch like Charles Bronson and Jan Michael Vincent just stand and like ridicule a woman who is committing suicide. <laughs> Well, yes. Well, let's get into that that small sequence, shall we? Real quick. Yeah. Now, I think I think Charles Bronson's Arthur Bishop gets a feel for his protege in the scene mm-hmm. where his girlfriend says, "You've not paid me enough attention. I'm going to commit suicide. I'm going to slit my wrists." Yeah. And to the audience and to them visiting, it's all just a show to get attention. She even asks how long it will take me, and Arthur Bishop, because he is a calculated and cold guy, he says, oh, how much do you weigh? 180 pounds? Oh, a few hours. You'll get tired and drowsy first. And then she actually does it, which surprised me. I didn't think that she'd actually go and, and actually cut her wrists. You know, you know, warning there if you haven't seen the film. But then I'm just like, they just proceed to sit around and eat sandwiches while she's slowly bleeding out. Yeah. I just found that to be entirely bizarre. It's such a 70s choice. Oh, it's incredibly bizarre, but I think it says so much about these two individuals that they just have no connection to humanity. Like, there's no sense of feeling anything for this woman. Uh, they do not care. And it just shows you how cold they are and how all that matters is this connection between the two of them. And the fact that they are, like, in a very quiet low-key way bonding over this moment well, i was gonna say was that is is that like him showing i say him is that like jan michael vincent's uh steve mckenna showing he's worthy by allowing her to kill herself i think it's an element of that and also just charles bronson realizing that this is someone who has the, the same sort of like coldness that he does i think it's like a moment where he actually connects to jan michael vincent that's fair enough I, I 
I, I know I'm like being a complete party pooper on this one. I do apologize for that. It is full of weird moments, this film. But this one will probably stand out for quite some time afterwards. It has like a lot of food for thought buried in it. Like it's not a perfect yeah. movie. This is not a perfect movie, people. But when it's kind of connecting to something, it has more ideas going on than your typical B action thriller. I also thought it was really interesting just this movie's whole discussion about killers as heroes or icons, which again, talking about like heroes are killers, especially when you're talking about like American culture and all these outlaw figures in the West. It's the 1970s when this is made. Serial killers are going to become a big part of culture as well and something that people are fascinated by. And I found myself wishing the movie explored more of that because I thought that was legitimately interesting. The idea that they can be assassins and do horrible things, but they're heroes. Is this the first sort of showing of like an anti-hero? It's like a very early showing of an anti-hero. No, they go back to film noir and everything, yeah. Oh, I suppose you're right. I suppose you're right. Well, I, let's dally over into the dislike pile. There's a few things I want to throw up first. I, I We've mentioned the pace, so I won't dwell on that too much. For me, it's actually Jan Michael Vincent is one of my biggest dislikes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not calling him out as a bad actor necessarily. I don't know much about his filmography, other things he's done. I'm sure he's been fabulous in other things. But something about him isn't connecting with me. I don't feel the connection between him and Charles Bronson in the film. The entire idea of having this protege taking your role is quite interesting. But it always feels like I want to just be spending time with Charles Bronson's Arthur Bishop doing assassination stuff, not so much seeing them two hanging out. I'm kind of on the same page with you. I don't think Jan Michael Vincent is particularly strong here. The reason that the dynamic worked for me was because of Charles Bronson and that I completely understood where he was coming from at all times and what this individual meant to him. But in terms of Jan Michael Vincent, like, I don't know if there's any truth to that Jeff Bridges rumor, but I think like you would have had a much stronger actor there to play off of Charles Bronson and it might have been a little bit richer there. I thought like Jan Michael Vincent did the action stuff well. He was very good at communicating someone who's just like, I mean, kind of just like a douche. Like you have the scenes of him at the parties and how he just has like kind of these <laughs> friends who are just running rampant all over, but he just doesn't care about anything. Like has absolutely no morality, seems narcissistic, just seems like a complete sociopath. And, like, the way he kind of wanders through his life, I found that very effective. But in terms of, like, a dramatic performance and getting across, especially some of the dialogue. He has some rough dialogue in this movie where he says things that, not to quote it verbatim, but it's like, I've been thinking about some stuff. You know, lines like that kind of thing mm -hmm. where it's like, oof, okay. Like, I think there's supposed to be a little bit of a vacant element to the character, but you want to see a little more inner something. And I don't know that Jan Michael Vincent has it. I will say this actor, he's not particularly well known to me beyond he was on a TV show that was quite popular called Airwolf in the 1980s, which was about a high-tech helicopter that he was the pilot of. And they kind of would you know, save people week to week, kind of like one of those action shows of the 80s. But Jan Michael Vincent had severe, severe alcohol issues and I think drug issues as well, that pretty much ruined his life. And uh, he did not have a good end. So, like, it was very much a tragic 
case of an actor who really unraveled over the course of his life. But at a certain point, especially here, at least showed promise as someone that could headline a picture. No, and as I said, like I, I actually am quite familiar with Airwolf. I just hadn't put the two and two together that was him. So it's actually quite cool to see that that's what he went on to do. I just don't think I really got behind him. There's like moments where I think they're meant to be leaning into more like he's idolizing Arthur Bishop, whereas he has just more of a, a gormless sort of stare or like a frat boy mentality about him. Like he's meant to be a sociopath like the mechanic. I get that. But I thought they would want to play into sort of the folly of his youth a bit more. Like he would make some mistakes or right. something like that. Whereas he just seems as uber competent as Arthur Bishop immediately. And I'm not sure it's playing to the the strengths of the actor very well either. So he just seems like that sort of, you know, bratty guy. Well, there's a reckless element to him that you see through, you know, the party scenes. But also where they're hanging out and they're like flying the plane. And what, uh, you know, what his character of um, Steve McKenna is willing to do, which is just like careen around in a plane, whereas like you always get the sense Charles Bronson can do these plane stunts, but it's all controlled. He knows exactly what he's doing at all times. I would have liked to have played with that dynamic, but I think there's an issue where just because of it could be the writing, it could also just be the performance of Jan Michael Vincent. But like at a certain point, there is a connection between these two. And I think, you know, Steve McKenna is aware of it. And it is why it takes him quite a while to actually kill the Charles Bronson character. I think you have kind of this push and pull in his mind of, I'm going to, you know, kill this guy versus I'm going along with him on missions and helping him. And I don't know that I ever really feel that push and pull coming from him. No, I, w- I was actually going to re- reply with the same thing, although I- I'd actually put that particular issue down to the script. Yeah. I would like to have seen a bit more from his perspective, especially when he was given the assignment to take him out, take out his mentor, and then maybe some of the attempts along the way. Maybe he tipped off that it was the boat was the target, and then that's why they sent the dummies. I mean, I guess the problem is this movie's called The Mechanic, which is one specific individual, the Charles Bronson character, so it's told pretty much from his point of view. Whereas, like, you know, we don't get it from the point of view of the Steve McKenna character. No, that's true. And also, what a very brave thing to do. Like, you wouldn't see that nowadays to just blow up your two main characters. No, no. And I can guarantee that the uh, Jason Statham film won't end the same way, even though I can't remember the ending of that movie. Well, there is a sequel. So it's definitely not getting blown up. It's not getting poisoned by wine or blown up in the first one, at least anyway. Uh, what about you, Cam? Something you disliked? I think I'm just going to say, I mean, a lot of what we've talked about, I agree with. Like In terms of like the Jan Michael Vincent performance and the pacing issues that really kind of come into play in that kind of second half of the movie, that's where I began to feel that the kind of the, the taut sort of tense feeling that the movie had established early on had kind of fallen away and it was becoming slow. Like, I, I like a good, you know, deliberately paced slow burn thriller but at a certain point it can just become slow and that's what it felt like here and like there's that bike chase which i mentioned earlier which feels like it's from like live and let die or something (laughs) it gets so goofy when they're crashing the like 
backyard party and people are like, oh my God, the plate of sandwiches has been flipped over. And I'm like, Archibald, how do you deal with that noise? <laughs> yeah. I just ignore it, darling. I'm like, come on, movie. You, at least early on, were showing that you were better than this. And stuff like that, I just was like, why? Like, this didn't need to be here. I I totally understand that. And I agree. I think the pacing is sluggish. All throughout the, the filling of the sandwich, as it were. <laughs> I mean, the uh, the the chase through the mountains did sort of make me laugh when they were going for people's gardens. But it's so cliched at this point that I was just like, yeah, whatever. I, I also, I want to spend more time with like, the the old people living in the house and how annoying their neighbors were. I want to find out more about that than watch the scene, which is actually just more of an indictment on the scene and the chase. I will give the chase one credit, though, which is I just said it felt like Live and Let Die, and this came out before Live and Let Die, so this was the originator, but it does have that like 70s ambling kind of chase feel. Does that, uh, does that mean the old people living in the uh, estate are the original J.W. Pepper family? And Mrs. Bell... <laughs> Yes, Mrs. Bell. Mrs. Bell and J.W. used to live a high-class life yeah. until they became police and recipients of airplane lessons. Yeah. Um, I guess that's Mrs. Bell. Older woman <laughs> in, uh, like, vintage... <laughs> Biplanes, sure, yeah. Biplane gear, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I wanted to bring up another one in, in the dislike pile, which is... There's a subplot that's like hinted at very briefly and then never paid any more mind, which is Arthur Bishop's anxiety issues. I was going to mention this later because there's a lot of animal stuff I enjoy in this movie. But yeah, at a certain point, Charles Bronson's character goes to an aquarium and has a panic attack. Yes. And it has some amazing footage of orcas and fish and what have you. But uh, mm -hmm. it's a very odd moment. And I agree they set up this anxiety issue. I mean, we could say that that's just connected to this like feeling of isolation and loneliness, but it's not really touched on again as like a issue that could harm him in the field or anything. No, I mean, I wrote down uh, fish PTSD and <laughs> I wrote down PTFD. Uh, my notes were going weird in the middle of this film, I have to say. But post-traumatic fish disorder. Do you think it was the fish that caused it? No, I don't think it was the fish, but maybe... Huh. I'm I'm trying to like wrap my head around the location because it's kind of like mm. a subterranean aquarium where you're looking through windows at fish. He's by himself, so does I've he? I've got it! I've got it! I've got it! I've got it! Go for it! It ties back to the story of them as a kid and being thrown in the in the <gasps> water and almost drowning. There it is. That's it. Yeah. Wow. There we go. Okay. Yeah. That actually has a setup and payoff now. Oh wow! I mean, it only only took uh, what forty years, fifty years since this <laughs> film came out. Should um, the ghost of Keenan Wynn wandered in and started laughing while uh, he was having yeah. that, uh, that panic attack as part of the as part of like the sequence like an orca and then ha 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 like, <laughs> okay okay and then you just faint and wake up in the hospital and then he throws the prescription away how careless yeah that laugh was something oh, else okay. it was like ha 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 <laughs> it was like so <laughs> weird <laughs> I, if you feel if you feel so inclined to cut a, a segment of that into this I won't uh, I won't have a problem with that okay okay we'll see uh... we'll see we'll see. Uh, any other dislikes? No, I think that's about me. Yeah, I wanted a bit more action, I would have said. But I think that's because I wasn't connecting to the lead, so the action was just something to distract me. So I think actual, a, a complaint would be to have a, 
uh, perhaps a better performance from the protege and a tighter script in the middle, and maybe I would have been more engaged. Yeah, I mean, I think just commit either way. Like, commit to, like, a slow-burn meditative film or commit to something that's more action-driven, which is what it is in the back half, but the mm-hmm. kind of the blend of the two didn't quite work for me. No, no. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's jump on over to any other notes. I've got a couple. What do you have, Cam? So, like, we mentioned the orcas and the fish. This movie has, like, a real animal thing going on because there's a sequence where they follow a mark to the zoo. That was notable to me. And then also there's a whole part where they go and I think I think it's Charles Bronson talking to, like, one of his clients or something who is like painting a um jaguar that's tied up in his backyard who is not happy with his lot in life i mean this is such a weird story to bring up but i guess it kind of ties in but like i remember when i was a kid like pretty young five six my parents took me down to the mall the local mall because they were having some sort of event where you could hold a jaguar and have your photo taken Right. I I assume it's a baby jaguar. Baby jaguar, but it just seems like were jaguars like a source of amusement to people in the 70s and 80s? Look at this thing that could viciously murder me. Oh, oh, let me have a photo. I have this photo. I could, like, dig it up. But yeah, it's like me, very young, holding this baby jaguar, who I doubt was that thrilled to be there, to be passed from person to person in a mall. Uh, Yeah, that, that, that does track to... Well, I would say an older attitude towards animals, but I think it's still present now in some places, unfortunately. Some places, yeah. yeah. Not so much mm. uh, North America, probably, but yeah. Tell that to the Tiger King. Mm, true enough, true enough. Indeed, indeed. Uh, the only other note I had that I hadn't already mentioned was more of a question. Is this... I know the answer to this is no, but is this one of Bronson's best films? Well, in terms of being a lead... It's probably up there because, I mean, I would say, you know, The Great Escape or Magnificent Seven are better movies than this, but he's not the lead. Those are ensemble films. With him in the lead, I mean, I think the original Death Wish is a pretty interesting movie. Um, But he made a lot of movies that were popular but not great. A lot of kind of generic action movies or westerns and things like that. When I think about the movies, at least that I personally have seen of his... I would put the mechanic on the higher end. It's fair enough. I, I think of all the now three, this is my least favorite. Death Wish is just a, it's just got a vibe to it. Death Wish just works. Yeah. And uh, Magnificent Seven is an ensemble piece. So you've got, you know, a bunch of other actors to bounce off of. But he's good in that film too. Like, I like this more than I like any of the Death Wish sequels. Um... And I also, not too long ago, actually watched one uh, with him called Assassination, directed by Peter Hunt, who, of course, was from the James Bond world. And it was terrible. Uh, So it was like a very sad example of a Charles Bronson film. I think this one, kind of messy, but it has so many interesting elements that I think it's probably in the upper tiers for me with his, uh, his, you know, starring vehicles. That's fair enough. I, I, I think I'm inexperienced to really wade into this. I'd be keen to hear what you all think about what his best ones are. Maybe we'll put a post up about that. But yeah, any other notes from you, Cam? Well, red alert. We had two Star Trek connections in this movie. I know them, yeah. Yeah, so Jill Ireland, who was Bronson's wife, um, 
played the prostitute that he went and visited. Him and Joe Ireland got married in the 60s, were together till her death uh, in 1990, where she died of breast cancer at the age of like 54. But she is um, also known as Spock's love interest in the classic episode, This Side of Paradise. And Joe Ireland and um, Charles Bronson, they made like 15 movies together. So it would not be a surprise to me if I read that this scene in this movie was maybe something of a demand on his part to get her into the movie. It wouldn't surprise me at all, but I think the scene is actually very effective. I think this is their first film together. Is it? Yeah. I mean, they made many, but yeah. Yeah, I actually watched a documentary about Charles Bronson earlier today, and it was quite interesting hearing that how uh, Charles got connected to Jill, and it was through another spy connection here. David McCallum, who plays uh, Ilya Kuryakin in The Man From U.N.C.L.E., uh, that it, they were originally married, David and Jill, and then the first time that Charles was introduced to Jill, uh, Charles turns to David and says, I'm going to marry your wife one of these days. Yeah. Uh, and lo and behold, a couple of years later, he did. Yeah, and they were like a very close-knit family. They had seven kids between them. Mm-hmm. and uh, They adopted a kid and everything. Yeah, and would basically truck their entire family unit from movie to movie, which is why Joe Ireland and him worked together so much. I mean, people so often talk about these great Hollywood romances, you know, of past eras or whatever, but it's like, why has no one done the biopic about the uh, Charles Bronson, Joe Ireland love affair? Well, I doubt it's going to have any talking penises. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I'm not sure if you're a man that hasn't seen the uh, the Tommy and Pam thing, so you're not getting that reference or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think of like um, you know Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, who people talk about as like this long term couple in Hollywood that people really romanticize. But I'm like, I don't know. Charles Bronson and Joe Ireland, they had a good thing going. I don't want to see their sex tape though. Okay, that's fair. Uh, the other um, <laughs> Star Trek connection is uh, Celeste Yarnell, who plays the girlfriend of a guy they are going to run a hit on later in the movie. The woman who is just basically silent in scenes with this target uh, in the latter sections of the movie. Uh, she's in the episode The Apple, but also she passed away just a couple years ago of cancer. But I met her at a convention and just one of the nicest celebrities I've ever met in my life. It's one of those ones where I, I'm, I bet you're glad you did it, and then they passed away a couple of years later, I, I would assume. I think she passed away, um, I think, two years after I met her. Yeah. Mm. It's always interesting to see sort of the connective tissue, especially around the 60s. It feels like everyone was either in Batman or Star Trek. Yeah. Some sort of Desilu production just to make a buck around that time. Yeah. That is something we've come across a lot because we, as much as people kid us about mentioning, you know, Red Alert, the Star Trek references, we've mentioned Batman 66 a lot on this show as well. Yeah, anyone working around this time that was like a a character actor or a TV actor has probably jumped onto one of those two shows. I mean, there's a couple of cop dramas as well running around the time, a couple of Western TV shows probably like, well, Gunsmoke is more like the 50s, but there's stuff still running that people could have been on too. Bonanza. But those sort of... Bonanza, yeah. Those Desilu productions, though, tend to be the ones people gravitate towards because they were in Technicolor. Well, not Technicolor, but they were in color and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, Cam, we've arrived at our destination. Time to slip into our velvet dressing gowns and debate whether the mechanic, the first version, is making the knock list. I'll throw it to you first, sir. What have you got? It's a no for me. Uh, this is one like the fourth protocol 
that I enjoyed this movie. I think people mm-hmm. should track it down, give it a watch. I think they'll appreciate kind of the 70s gritty atmosphere of the movie and find a lot of value in it. But, like, it's too messy. It just, the pace, the pacing issues. It's a movie that I have some affection for. I think I have more affection for it now than I did when I saw it the first time. Sure. But I can't put it on a list of, like, the all-time greats, especially when we talk about Hitman films. We've only included one so far on the list of traditional hitman type films, which is, you know, the day of the jackal. Um, I'm going to be looking very closely at day of the jackal as we continue down the road of doing more and more hitman movies, because I think there's a certain bar has been set and this one is not close to that. No. And that's not to say that uh, hitman movies can't come at it from a different angle and still wow us. Of course. But this is another one of those sort of meditative studies much like Day of the Jackal is. And, I, and I, I agree with you. I don't think it reaches that benchmark at all. I think you're fonder of this film than I am. There's still things I will enjoy about this. I'll still remember the guy drinking the tea the incorrect way and getting blown up because he should have been. <laughs> of course. That's what happens. That's what happens when you drink tea badly. Yeah, stuff like that will jump out to me. Uh, you know, uh, why there was a pig in the bathroom, I don't know. Hmm. Uh, More animals. More, more animals, some crazy bits in this film. And, and I think, I mean, I've already sort of telegraphed it's a no from me, but I think what I will just quickly summarize with is I think this is still important to discuss. And, you know, even from the writer himself calling this a pseudo James Bond film, there's a lot in here that, you know, is a James Bond film. What's that line from Quantum of Solace? Half monk, half hitman? Yeah. You know, that's what Bond is sometimes. He is just a gun for hire. They even mention the license to kill in this film. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot to it. So I'm, I'm glad we looked at the film. I'm hoping there are ones out there that get closer to reaching that sort of level of the Day of the Jackal. I'm also just genuinely interested now to, having watched this movie, compare it with the Jason Statham one. Because I'm sure they're going to have very different artistic aims. I'm just very, very interested to see what they changed because i just don't remember anything about that 2011 movie well i never saw it or its sequel but we are going to tackle it as part of like a run of like when we're doing a franchise so we'll be looking at the next one in a few months time basically yeah uh but there you go folks it's two no's and as such the mechanic is not making the knock list the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified cameron what are we talking about next week We are tackling another perhaps hidden gem from the 1930s. We'll find out. We are going to look at Lancer Spy, a early George Sanders film. Uh, This one is available on YouTube, so check our social media because we'll have links out there as well as in the show notes for next week's episode. Uh, It's just over an hour, very watchable. So uh, check it out, Lancer Spy. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we had a pretty good luck last time with the Five Fingers. Yeah. Didn't know anything about that going into it, and it turned out to be a knock-list winning film. It's nice to roll the dice on some of these older films that we've not heard of, so I'm looking forward to seeing what Lancer Spy has for us next time. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out Lancer Spy. Join us next week. If you like what you heard on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast, and if you can spare the dime, Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spyhards. And if you don't already, make sure to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, 
and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, remember, it's all in the bubbles. 